Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. I'm still adjusting to the change in the introduction. It's such fun to have a new book out. Modern Horse Training was published on April 26, 2023, and we're publishing this episode on May 9th. So it's just been out for really less than two weeks. So I'm sure it won't come as a surprise if I tell you that what we're going to be talking about today is the book. This is part two of our conversation about the riding section in modern horse training. At the very beginning of the book, I offer some suggestions for how to use the book. I know many of you are going to want to skip the beginning chapters and jump straight to the sections that sound most relevant to what you want to teach, and that's fine. The book is designed so you can jump around. In every chapter, you'll find signposts directing you to earlier sections. If you discover that you're missing component skills, then you'll know where to look for them in the book. Component skills are what helps the training to go smoothly. If you aren't sure what this means, then when you get the book, I suggest that you begin at the beginning. Parts one through three explain the overall structure of the training. Part four gets you off to a great start with the core foundation lessons. From there, you'll be using these foundation lessons as building blocks that will help you to teach the lessons that are covered in the rest of the book. The premise of this work is every lesson is taught using components and concepts that are covered in previous chapters. So when people jump around in the book, there's always the risk that they may not understand a lesson because they jump past a critical step. But I'm prepared for that. I know some people will be reading the book straight through from cover to cover, and others are going to be jumping around. Whichever way you use the book, I know there are going to be times when you're going to want to refer back to earlier sections, and I'm prepared for that. Within every chapter, there are lots of links to previous sections. In this conversation, Dominique jumps straight to the last part of the book where I talk about writing. Hopefully, you'll be able to follow along without the Connect the Dot lessons that are in the book. Last week, Dominique got us started with the chapter on riding safely. We talked about a go-forward cue. Now we're going to talk about teaching woe. And that's going to take us to some important elements that are part of advanced training. Do you want to explain a little bit what the hairpin turns and how this exercise where we teach our horse how to stop, not from pulling the the leads back, but teaching your horse to bend and disengage the hindquarters. Let me start by, so this obviously something that clearly stood out for you. So what is it about this particular lesson? What made it stand out for you? You mean the hairpin one? Yep, the hairpin one, because you've mentioned it several times now. So clearly it's something that, that caught your fancy. I guess 
again, it's because you you really slice it down where in the beginning, when you're going around the cone, you're really, you, because you're using both the lead and the clicks. Yeah. And so in the beginning, you're clicking every little turn around the cone and eventually, and of course you're releasing every time the horse is responding to your cue to turn. In the beginning, as we did on the ground, the click and the release may be at the same time and eventually your click will start, you will release every time they respond, but you will not necessarily click every time they respond. You can click a little bit later, expanding your loop. Yeah, that's something that I think is worth diving into a little bit, is the, the, the role of the click and the relation of the click as a yes answer signal and mm-hmm. the release of the rein or the lead as a yes answer signal. And, mm-hmm. and I use lead rope and rein interchangeably. So mm-hmm. sometimes I'm saying a rein and sometimes I'm saying a lead. It's the same communication system, whether mm-hmm. you're on the ground and it is a lead rope or whether you're under saddle and we call it a rein. It's the same communication system. But when you slide down a lead rope and you're taking the slack out, you want to go to a point of contact. So we're looking at what is shaping on a point of contact. And so you're going to a point of awareness, but not beyond it. So if I slide down a lead rope and my horse doesn't respond and I keep going and adding more pressure to the point where I wanted my horse to bring his head to the right and I slide down the lead rope, I take the slack out of the lead rope and my horse doesn't respond. And so I I take more of the feel of the lead rope and I pull the horse's head to the side. That is not what we're after here. That's mm-hmm. not shaping on a point of contact. I moved his body. body. Yeah, you want it, the horse to move its own body. Its own body, right. So I slide down the lead rope And when I take the slack out of the lead rope, I'm saying I want something. And this this idea, this way of using the lead to say, I want something, thank you, you just gave it to me. I originally encountered and learned from John Lyons, who was definitely not a clicker trainer, not a positive reinforcement trainer, but he was very good at breaking behavior down into smaller and smaller component pieces. And this idea of how do you use the lead to communicate? Well, you never want to use a lead rope or a rein in a punishing way that creates tension, that creates fear, that creates worry. So I want to be very careful and use the shaping on a point of contact. So I'm going to slide down the lead rope to the point where my horse is aware that I'm there. And, that, and it may be different for my horse than your horse. Absolutely. Maybe for your horse, it's at the very beginning of the lead. And maybe for my horse, it's at the snap. And it can be different depending upon what you're asking for. It can be mm. different under different environmental conditions. It can mm. be different at different parts of your training session. So, you know, you might start at the beginning of the training session and everything is going great. And then somebody starts turning horses out 
and your horse's focus is no longer in the arena with you. He's listening to the other horses going out. And so the point of connection is going to change just because the environment has changed so radically. But in either case, I'm going to slide down the lead rope and and I'm going to go to this point of connections, point of awareness, and I'm going to wait there. And when my horse responds, I'm going to click and release. So my horse is getting two yes answers. I'm releasing and I'm clicking. And then I can pick up the lead rope again. I can slide down. And all I'm doing is asking for a little bit of softening. It's all I want from the horse. Just soften, take a breath, relax your jaw a little bit. And that's all I want from you. And I get that and I click and I release. And my horse is getting two yes answers. He's getting the release of the lead, which is something he'd like. He's getting the yes of the click, which is linked to a treat. And so somebody might come along and say, well, why do I need the click if I can say yes with the lead rope? Why do I need this click? And the answer is that the click and the release are going to begin to separate. So as I repeat this process, I'm going to start to slide down the lead. But instead of clicking, as my horse softens, I'm going to just release. So I slide down. I can predict because I've got a really clean loop. And I'm predicting that when I slide down, my horse is going to soften. And so I just release. And then I slide down again. And my horse softens. And this time I click and treat. So I'm beginning to build a longer sequence. So I can slide down and ask for a softening and release. I can slide down and ask for a softening and release. I can slide down, ask for a third softening and release. And, and I can slide down, ask for fourth softening. And this time when my horse releases, maybe I'll click and treat. So I can build this chain out more and more and more and more. And what begins to happen as you do this is the click begins to act like a highlighter. So it can really highlight specific changes that are occurring as this sequence continues. So when I get that first softening of the jaw and then I slide down again, well, the jaw is already, it's like bending a coat hanger. You bend it the first time, it's a little stiff. You bend it a second time, it's a little softer. So now when I start to slide down the lead rope, my horse is beginning to soften sooner. He's meeting me at a slightly different point. So I'm beginning to get more of a bend coming into play. And I click and reinforce that. So I've just highlighted that little extra degree of bend that's coming in. And then I slide down the lead and release on the first give, slide down the lead, release on the second give, slide down the lead, release on the third give, and click as I do that. And what I may be capturing is a little bit more lift and release at the pole. So I'm saying to the horse, wow, when you release at the jaw so that I feel that really softening at the pole area. 
that I really, really like. And I can click and treat that. And when that's consistent, then I can ask for those three gives. I'll get all of, I'll get that lovely softening. But now I'm going to withhold my click and I'll wait and I'll get the fourth give. And that fourth give is going to take me deeper into the horse's body and begin to really connect up the hindquarters. And that's really what we're doing when you talk about the hairpin turn. Mm -hmm. We can look at the hairpin turn in a just from the in a simple way of there's a cone, we're gonna go around the cone. And if you break that turn up step by step by step by step, all of these subtle weight shifts that I'm describing are going to happen. Mm -hmm. So whether you know what it's gonna feel like or you know what it's gonna look like, you can tell that it's occurring because your horse it's a sharp turned. turn. Yeah. yeah. You just turned around the code. Yeah, that's right. So it happened. Yeah. If you it video, happens. you'll see it. Yeah, it happened. <clears throat> he turned around the cone. He was going in the direction of the far end of the arena. He turned around the cone and now he's, his nose is pointing back towards the arena gate. He made that turn. And when you break it down, weight shift by weight shift by weight shift using the click to help you with that, you really begin to understand all of these subtleties that are going on in your horse's balance and you can begin to connect up so you're connecting up softening on the front end with the rebalancing the engagement of the hindquarters and then the connection into the shoulders and then that opens up lateral work so you've gone from using these exercises to teach the basics of can i get my horse to stop can i get my horse to go can i interrupt if something does startle my horse, can I interrupt that startle and keep everything safe? And now all of a sudden, we're we're heading straight into performance work, which is really fun. So it's right. you know the same lessons that you teach for safety, perfected, take you to advanced performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, and in the in the safety part, I think the inclusion of the grown-ups and the pauses were important yes. yes and so you say in the book sometimes people feel like they may be a nuisance but they understand why it's why it's useful when their horse startles and he just stops and relax because it's part of the pattern it's almost like muscle memory to him that after we turn we just pause I get a a treat maybe so it's it's part of what you've been doing so often that it just happens. Yes. And the, the horse knows how to take a deep breath, mm -hmm. let go of all of the activity that was just occurring and to go into deep stillness. And that's that's critically important when you think about advanced performance. This is an underlying skill that really makes a huge difference to a horse's ability to perform and not to simply wash out because of nerves. So when I think about, if you were to watch somebody like Nuno Olivero, who was the great dressage master of the last century, and he would be sitting on this horse and the horse would be in this just high energy state that is needed for Piaf. And then Mr. Olivero would drop the rein 
and the horse would be instantly in mm. stillness and not wired stillness not mm. the you know when when can i do it again or when or what you know what or that i'm just standing here really 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 still but i'm so wired you you know i'm gonna jump out of my skin it's just deeply deeply settled and relaxed and that's a critical skill to build into the horses so if you're going to ask for all of that collection all of that energy all that engagement you've got to have a way of saying oh now just turn it all off or you think about an agility dog mm, yeah you know or the, the horses who are in the starter's gate and they're just already in a lather because they're so mm. wound up and yeah. they're blowing the performance before they ever jumped out of the starter's gate. Think of the all that energy that's being used up. And this is this is a long time ago. I did some work for an event writer who rode at the Olympic level. She was long listed twice for the Olympics and almost made it except for the very last, right before the final selection, her horse plastic came up lame. Mm. Which is, you know, in, in eventing it can it happens, no one. But she had this just magnificent, just gorgeous Irish thoroughbred and huge horse. In the dressage ring, she was a real struggle. And when she first got her, she really struggled with the dressage part of the competition because the horse would jump out of the dressage arena and it was just really really a challenge and what I was to do was to work her in hand and help with the basic balancing of this horse and so I spent a good amount of time over the course of the summer teaching this horse the classical work in hand and really helping with her balance and her emotional well-being. And the whole time that I was working with her, she was not getting the usual conditioning miles that her rider normally would have been giving her. And, and she was a little bit, you know, do I really want Alex working this horse because I should be riding her right now and getting her really fit so that she's fit enough for the competition. But she also needed what I was doing. So she took her up to her first major competition and not only won, but won best conditioned horse. And it was because her horse was not taking it out of herself. She wasn't taking the performance out of herself through her nerves. Mm. And she wasn't wearing herself out by being out of balance where she's mm. having to work so much harder because she's out of balance. So it, yeah. you know, it, it all ties together. It absolutely all ties together. You know, I, when you were talking, I was thinking of a conversation I heard once. I don't remember what sports it was dog trainers talking. I think if they were doing agility or cause agility is very high energy. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because they were saying, you know, some of those sports dogs, they're not the best family dogs because <laughs> they're no. so hyper. You know, they don't yeah. know how to relax anymore. 
They're just like, they're super great in the ring, but boy, everyday life, they're not easy to handle. You know, they can't relax. Yeah. And that's no life for an individual, whether we're talking about a dog or a person or a horse. And that's why it's so important beginning with these, the foundation lessons. It's go into grownups. There's this lovely pause in grownups. Then you ask for targeting. So you're building these little chains and you you go to a mat and, and on the mat, you're, the horse settles and relaxes and goes into head lowering or goes into grownups. That those pauses are built in because of where we want to go. We want to go to high energy. You know, people want to jump. They want to ride upper level dressage tests. They want to ride raining patterns and you know, do all these other fun things, you know, and, and and these are things that horses can enjoy. You know, there are lots of horses that when they're trained well, they love to jump. So it's not that we're doing this against the horse, but uh, when you train them well and you and you develop it well, these are activities that horses can enjoy just as much as the people mm-hmm. when it's done well. So, you know, we want to get what do you dream of being able to do with your horse? Most of us who have horses are dreaming of riding them. Yes, they're very fun to have out in the field. They're very decorative. They're very lovely. But you know, the reality is most people who have horses dream of riding. And I want to get people there. Mm-hmm. I want to get them to that dream. And I want to get them to that dream safely. And I want to get them to that dream in a way that where they can ride the horse for the good of the horse, that the riding does not damage the horse physically, mentally, emotionally. Mm. And it's, I've, in the past year or two, I've done a little bit of horse shopping for, for people. I love to horse shop for oh, other not people, for yourself, for other people. You know, it's fun to eavesdrop in on somebody else's horse shopping. But it can be so frustrating because it can be so hard to find sound horses. Mm. And that should not be. You know, it just shouldn't be that. It's the rarer thing to have a sound horse. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you know that from the Mm. days of Mm -hmm. when the Cavadio was looking for horses for the show. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Finding horses that did not have deal-breaking problems. Or, you know, where you buy a horse and then six months later, you either have monumental vet bills or you're faced with, you know, well, it's a nice pasture pet, but it's not mm-hmm. like we got it. So, you know, in terms of modern horse training, part of this is it's a push to say, we need to figure out how to ride in a way that doesn't tear the horse's body apart. And so when you are going to a point of contact, when you learn how to go to a point of contact and not beyond, how to ride on a release, you're not putting the kind of backwards traction compression onto a horse's spine that cripples horses. Mm. That was that just got me up on my soapbox. <laughs> so before we go, yes, 
I want to talk about, or just remind people, spring's here. I know my horses are going to be transitioned to their summer paddock in three weeks. Yes. And so it's transition time to the grass. And it's always a bit of a scary time for me. <laughs> just, I just want to remind people to really observe their horses and make slow transitions because colics, laminitis, this season is a very delicate season for these conditions. And, yes. you know, laminitis, sometimes if you catch it early enough, you can really prevent a lot of damage and it can start in a very, very subtle way. So, you know, just looking at your horse, I, because I remember I, when we had the farm at Tavalia, I had one horse one day and he was coming the, I was in my home and I was looking out the window and one of the horse was coming back from the, the paddock and his stride was not the same as usual. It was a smaller stride and so I went to the barn and the groom said, yeah, he's been kind of like that for two, three days. And sure enough, you know, the feet were hot and he had laminitis. And this horse after that could not go back to grass. And I don't know, perhaps if we had seen it earlier, his life would have been different after that. So right. it's, it can it's, also it's, come up unbelievably fast we had mm -hmm. a, a horrible year where we had the area that we were in was really high tick fevers and i don't know i don't know why one year you have a really really impacted by the tick fevers and the next year you aren't and the vets don't have good answers for it or they or even really answers for why this area is really bad this year but this other area next year, just mm. but for whatever reason, that was our year. And mm. every one of the horses came down with tick feet. It was probably had a plasmosis, but, and Fengor was running a fever and we had the vet out and we were, he was checking him. It was the recheck and Sindri, our other Icelandic was, up in the top field and I watched him walking mm -hmm. across the top field and he took a odd little step mm -hmm. and I said to the vet I'm not you know I'm seeing let's let's go up and check him so he walked up to the top mm -hmm. of the field he checked him he was fine no okay. pulses no heat he was mm -hmm. fine two hours later the vet Ooh. was back and Sindri was in full laminitic Wow. So if somebody misses it, they mustn't beat themselves up because, you know, it can come up unbelievably fast. Yeah. Um, well, you know, even just the sugar in the in the grass every year is not the same. It depends on the climate, yeah. on the, you know, quantity of rain, quantity of sun. So... It's always scary, I think, for horse owners when, you know, these, I mean, the ticks, like you say, you know, why one year more than the other? But bottom line is, it's a time of year where I think we really need to look at our horses, try and do longer transitions if we can. It's not always easy. You know, in a boarding barn, 
they usually don't want to do 14 days of transition to the grass. They want to do it quicker than that. And so you have to negotiate, you know, <laughs> how long if the transition for me, is, you know, minimum of seven days for sure. And some hand grazing before, but it's, it's a time of year where we need to re, to be really. So do you want to describe, since, since we're, you know, we're generally talking about training, do you want to describe the hand grazing and the process that you've gone through to teach your horses to be really good hand grazers and to leave grass? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that in a few podcasts, but yeah, it's something I do every year. I always go back to this exercise because every spring, of course, they are very eager because my horses are like in a, on the dirt during the winter, there's no grass where they are. And so at this time of year, we start to bring them to a patch where there's lots of nice grass starting and in like I said near the end of May they will be transitioning to their summer paddocks where where they will be spending the whole summer sleeping there at night etc. So when I start hand grazing at the beginning you know I'll do five minutes of hand grazing and then I'll slowly expand to 15 minutes so they have to leave the the patch of grass after five minutes you know when you haven't seen grass for the whole winter that's that's i mean that's a big deal yes and so i follow the you wrote a blog actually on this and it's a blog i think i don't remember what you called it i know you talk about bone rotation in it because when your horse has his head down and you want his head to go up, especially if they're not yet used to you asking head up and we'll go back. Yes. So they they may resist a little bit in the beginning until they get that it's okay if I ask you, because what I don't do is go in, eat five minutes and then go out. Yes. I don't do that because they that would mean that if I lift their head, we're out of here. So I don't do that. I come into the grass patch. I will let them eat a little bit before I start the exercise because, you know, come on. Yes. <laughs> we have to have a yes. few bites. Take, take the but, edge off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then I will ask for a lift of the head and release them back to the grass. And I might also give them some carrots. Sometimes I will, and they will take it. But, you know, the treat or the reinforcement is to go back eating. And sometimes we'll walk a step or two. Once we've done the exercise at one place, lifting the head up, we will walk a step or two, again, release to the grass, eat a few bites, and we'll do this and Of course, when I know it's about time for me to leave, I strategically bring them near the road so that I don't have to cross like 50 feet of grass and we're going because that won't work. They will they will drag me. But it seems that once we're on the road, they're like, oh, okay, we're on the road. We're we're going back to the barn now. But the, the thing about the bone rotation and how you put your your arm 
probably you should you should describe it because now, if people go to my blog, the clickercenterblog.com, and you do a search on deer fencing. Deer fencing, because that's the image up. you give. It's yeah. as if you were trying to get out a post of a deer fence. Right. So when you have electrical tape, the electric wire for your horse paddocks, often we'll use the step it posts, the fiber. The glass. green metal posts. Well, they're not well, metal. They're green. They're, oh. Because if they were metal, then the, so they're a plastic step it posts. So a lot of people will be familiar with them. And I use them in the fall. I use them to put up the deer fencing because it's just temporary. Okay. You step on the posts and it goes into the ground. It's got a little stake at the bottom. And because they're temporary, you can pull them out and move your fencing around. But if they've been in the ground, and especially if the ground is hard, if you just reach out straight, so if you were, say you had a, you were holding a pen and you just reached out to the pen so that your hand and is going around it. pens or your fingers are, are around the pen and your thumb is on the other side and you then try and pull up, you might find that the post doesn't come up very easily, but it's a lot of work. And if you're taking down a lot of deer fencing, you're going to be really tired at the end of it. And you may be saying, oh, I'll just leave that post there because I can't get it out of the ground. Or if you're in the spring, I always, because I do use electric for the horse fencing, and I always reset all the posts in the spring so that everything's nice and secure. And if you're doing that sort of with your this straight hand grasp, you're going to get really tired. But if you're standing over the post and you wrap your hand around the post, sort of like the way a snake might twine itself. Yeah, so your arm is no longer perpendicular to the post. It's now parallel to the post. Yes, so you're going down the post. Yeah, along the post right. with your arm, not and like a 90-degree angle anymore. be a bone rotation as you do that. And what you will find is that if you have that wrap around the post, what you'll find is that the post just pops right out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's really neat. So you can, especially for those of you who have step at posts, you can go out and practice getting posts out of the ground and resetting <laughs> your electric fences and just really paying attention to how you wrap your arm around the post and it pops right out. And a lot of people, a lot of you may discover that, oh, right, that's how, that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why would you do it any other way? Mm -hmm. It works. And then when you have the lead rope, you're going to think about when you want the horse to bring his head up, you're going to stand directly, you're going to stand next to the horse's head. Mm -hmm. So you are basically over the snap. And you're right. going to let your arm go down and around the lead rope, mm -hmm. not around so that you're wrapping the lead around your wrist or your hand. So if the horse pulls away, you're being dragged. We're mm -hmm. not talking about that kind of a wrap, but the kind of going around that you are doing on that step it post. If you go around the lead rope in that way, and you'll be leaning down just a little bit through your, your hips and your ribs, 
then when you straighten up, what will happen is that bone rotation will do its leverage job and your horse will just pop his head right up. And so mm-hmm. then you click, you give him a treat and you go right into grown-ups. And yeah, the go- thing that is important there though is to make sure that when the head has gone up, that the lead is short enough yes. that he cannot go back down right. without you cueing him to go right. back down. So the, and you know, if, if he does go down, then he'll, for me, it's like the harshest part of my training is if he did go down, he would find the end of the leap. So it would be not as soft as my usual way with them, but you know, by now, mind, they know this exercise, but it's important because otherwise, if they go back down without you cueing them, they've just been reinforced for going back down without waiting for your cue. But if the the lead is short enough, then you can treat them with carrots or whatever you treat them with while they're with their head up. And then when you decide you're ready and don't wait too long, because the bigger reinforcers, the grass here, not the carrot, you release them into going back to graze. Right. But the, the short lead is, I think, is key because otherwise you, you won't control the reinforcer. And the, the lead will be short because as you are wrapping your arm around the lead like a snake, but not wrapping so that it's coiled around your wrist, which would be dangerous, but you're using that bone rotation mm-hmm. to go down the lead, you're going down to the snap or close to the snap. So you're on a short lead. So when the horse comes up, it's very easy to fold into, grown-ups are talking, on a, a shorter than normal lead. And that way, when the horse does try to put his head straight back down, he encounters the limit of the lead. So it's essentially, you are a post, and he mm-hmm. is discovering that, oh, I'm attached to this post. Yeah. And, and it's not that you're after that, that you're kind of pulling harshly. That's not no. what you're doing. You're just, he just can't reach the grass because right. you're like a, a post. Again, yeah. I suppose yeah. you're, you're just there with a short lead. And right. so if his head goes down, there's not enough rope to go all the way down, but you're not punishing. You're just <laughs> staying there and kind of preventing access to the reinforcer. But it's not, when I say it's the harshest thing, I don't mean that I'm being, I'm not punishing at all. It's just that usually everything is so soft in in the handling that it's a little bit more, it can be a little bit more abrupt, but it's not a punishment. If you are well anchored, so you're standing in good balance, you have your hands, folded together in the grown-ups are talking orientation so that your hands are against your body. You're basically also using another bone rotation and you're putting yourself into a very stable orientation. So when the horse does drop his head down, you can be very non-reactive to that. Exactly. When we say it's like a post, you're also trying to be like a post in terms of posts do not become emotional when a mm-hmm. horse pulls on them. Yeah. You know, a post never gets angry if a horse pulls on them. A post does not begin to get after a horse because a horse pulled on them. No, and you have to help yourself, I think, in terms of 
the environment because who else, who other animal trainer is training on top of, you know, all this reinforcement that because no one else does that, right? Only horse owners have to bring their horse over grass and tell their horse, no, no, we're going to the paddock. You're not, or whatever. You're not to access this reinforcement. No one does that. We have well, to. You could say that dog trainers do that because you think like about what? the world. Well, how tempting for dogs oh, is to smelling. Yeah. Yeah, that they want to, yeah, yeah. they may not want to so, eat the grass, but they Yeah, that's true, power. that's true. So in other words, it's becoming good at um, using environmental reinforcers right. that are accessible. So when I say you have to be strategic and help yourself, when you start this exercise, you don't bring your horse to like a, a big, big yard and you go right at the other end and now you're stuck out there you have to you know think about it a little bit in advance yeah. i know sometimes our conditions are not always easy to work and, with and, and sometimes instead of starting with grass so you're in a, a dirt paddock with your horses so if you know that grass is going to be really really tempting and a and an issue that mm -hmm. could become a problem in terms yeah. of you're just going to get dragged. So you can begin in a dirt paddock and just put out small hay piles. Yeah. So you're letting your horse take you to whatever hay pile he chooses. So you're not trying to oppose or direct the horse to any particular hay pile. He mm -hmm. spots a hay pile, you walk with him. He puts his head down, he's eating the hay, you let him eat for a few bites, then you ask him to bring his head up. You click, you reinforce, you go into grown-ups. You're going to reinforce him when he has slack in the lead, click and treat another time or two, and then you release him down to the hay pile, and you let him eat the hay pile for a couple bites, and then you repeat this again, and then you direct him away from that hay pile to another hay pile. So he's learning to leave, but you're structuring it using something that's tempting but not as yeah, tempting not as much as and you grass. could then you could then progress to doing the same thing with feeding balls with hay stretchers you yeah. know if you want to make it a little bit harder yeah. but the whole idea is to let the horse know that good manners will be rewarded don't worry even if you lift your head you'll get to the grass again yeah. when they have the good manners there is more for them. We can bring them everywhere. It, we're not worried that we won't be able to, to take them back. It's so nice when your horse is like that. I, he, he's yes. just well-mannered. He goes on the grass and he comes off the grass when you ask him and he knows it's not the end of the world. Right. It, because you've been through a teaching process. You've been through a teaching process. That's right. I don't think any horse comes wired as I'm going to eat grass for a minute and leave it all there and go away. I think right. no, no horse is like that unless you have taught them that the reinforcer will be back, that right. you will reward them for the good manners. It's okay to leave the grass because you're going to get to eat it again. Yeah. And that when your person directs you away from the patch that you were just eating, it's often to go find a better patch exactly a and patch. it's you know it's the same when you have a dog 
that steals thing, you know? So you don't just ask for whatever they stole. You'll give them something, you know? They know that, or you'll even give them back the thing, yep. you know, if you can, if it's not dangerous for them. But, you know, when you want a dog to retrieve and give you whatever back, there has to be a reward. So it's the same if they leave the, the grass and you have to take into account the hierarchy of reinforcement. And for sure, yeah. in the spring, grass is at the top there. And what it means is that, you know, as you teach this first on the ground, that you can then get to the point where you can do full training sessions on grass. And mm -hmm. the grass is not a problem. The horse is not diving for the grass. He's not distracted by the grass. He's staying with you, working with you. And then when you get under saddle, you know, your friends may all be on horses where the horse is pulling the, the reins out of their hands and diving for the grass. And they're in that struggle of fighting with the horse to keep the horse's head up. And you're just enjoying a lovely ride on your clicker trained horse who is comfortable on the grass. And periodically you may say, oh, would you like to graze? I think it's important that part. Yeah. You know, that sometimes we take some of our time to give this to them. Yes. That we we take the 10, 15 minutes when once they're transitioned, you know, when and there's a because the, the nicest grass is always out of the paddock. <laughs> You know, at the, maybe not in the beginning, but later. And you you give them, you know, it's like when you take your dog out for a walk. I think so, they, they should have time when they are allowed to sniff. It's their walk, you know, be generous with your animal. And I think it, it'll come back to you. You'll have a nicer relationship with your animal if you do take the time for them a little bit. You know, I have really been so lucky in that because I teach I've gotten to know a lot of horse handling teams and, and I've seen a lot of training, a lot of good training. And this is one of those things that I saw years ago, early on in the exploration of clicker training. And it was Megan with Fig. And I wrote about Fig in the very first book, Clicker Training for Your Horse. She was a thoroughbred mare who had some very, very dangerous behaviors. And she had been passed from one person to another, like a hot potato, landed with Megan. And Megan said, you know, I, help. She never had, she never dealt with a horse who was biting and kicking and rearing and spinning and, you know, all the big nasty things that really just make it so unsafe to be around a horse. And she couldn't pass the hot potato on to the next person. She didn't feel that was ethical, nor was she able to just say, well, I don't want to work with this horse. I'm just going to put her down. She loved Fig. So we started with protective contact. We got really lucky in that Fig was living in an old dairy barn and the stall that she was in had vertical wooden slat that were close enough together that Fig could put her nose out but she couldn't lunge at us. So we got lucky in the, the natural setting of the dairy barn gave us protective contact. 
And then we just kept working. But Megan had fig at her house and she had a muddy paddock. So during the spring season, her paddock was slippery mud. Well, you can't work there. It's mm. not safe. She had her driveway and, and we did work a lot on the driveway. And then she had the turnout fields where there's grass. Mm. And when she started riding her, she set up this pattern where she would do a set of riding and then she would drop the reins and let Fig graze. And Fig would just stay so relaxed and so calm and so settled. And it was really impressive because this was a retrain. You know, Fig had been a horse that would rear and spin and bolt and do you know, these really scary things under saddle. And, mm-hmm. and instead, she's working over grass. She's staying emotionally settled. She's staying focused on Megan. They're doing some just really beautiful, learning the beginnings of lateral work. And then when we got a little bit of really nice work, it would be drop the reins, let her have some grass. Mm-hmm. And then when Megan gathered up the reins, they would lift her head up so easily, no fight, no fuss, no getting after the horse. And and this was, what, 30 odd years ago. And it was really instructive to see how much you can use the grass as a reinforcer. So instead of fighting the grass, which is what so many people do, instead of fighting the grass, we Mm -hmm. use it. and, and, And that's the power of it, that we're in all of this training, what we're really doing is turning things around and upside down and inside out and looking at them from a different perspective. You know, that the grass is not the enemy. <laughs> it's not a distraction. We can turn it around and use it as a reinforcer. It's mm-hmm. okay to get off your horse. You know, if something's going pear-shaped, you may be much better off getting off your horse and working on the ground. It's okay to go for a trail ride in your arena instead of feeling as though, oh, all my friends are out on a trail ride and- and I'm going around a circle of cones. <laughs> yeah, or, or the pressure is on, I need to be out there too when your horse is not ready. We're just gonna look at all of these things from a different point of view so that we can just build success on success on success and have a lot of fun getting there. It's not a frustrating process of, oh, poor me, my friends are all out trail riding and I'm here in the arena teaching my horse to go to mats. It's like, oh, what fun this is because my horse is having so much fun and I'm seeing how smart he is. But in the book, though, you, you you do go into the importance of fading the props at some point, because you talk, you talk about tractor beams, the attraction of the props. Like yes. in the beginning, the way the training was set up, the mountain block was really a hot place to be and highly reinforced. And so at some point, when you want to go out on the circle, well, it's very possible that your horse wants to go back to the mounting block, not because he wants to tell you that, you know, he's not feeling well, but because it's been highly reinforced. And yes. so 
there's a point where you need to start thinking about fading these things. And so, for instance, the circle, you will start to to move it a little bit farther away from the mounting blocks. And what I like too in the book is that we're back to the book now, but that's okay. I like that you'll say, well, let's say you're trying to go around the circle of cones, but your horse decides he wants to go back to the mounting block and you asked with the rain to stay on the circle, but he's going back to the mountain block. No big deal. I like this because you also give us instructions if things don't go according to plan. I think it's very important when we train to always have a plan for what happens if he doesn't do what I ask. Yeah. And so, you know, you just say, go back to the mounting block. You, you can dismount if you like and go by foot around the circle and go back on and then ask again. And there's a point where he'll be ready to yeah. go to the next mat and you or don't just, have or to. Or you can add mats. So <laughs> maybe you've only got four mats going around the circle and the horse. It's too far. It's too far. So you know that as the horse comes around the circle, he's likely to detour to the mounting block. So let's strategically place a mat so it's easier for him to go to the mat than to go to the, go block. To the mounting block. Mm -hmm. And once he goes to that mat, then the next mat is you easier. Go. And so yeah. now all of a sudden you're going completely around the circle and the mounting block is no longer pulling him off the circle. So right. it's really just, it's, it's using a skill that you've been developing from the very beginning of the training, which is really learning how to, arrange the environment effectively. Yeah. And so when your loops are clean and you've expanded your, your your cones and your circle and you're now at the far end of you can start to fade out. You can start to take mats out. You bring them back if you need them, but there's also a, a place and time when you need to not have these. They, they should not become a crutch, you say in the right. book. There's a point where you need to fade them out. And you will know and your horse will know how to make these turns. And by then you're ready to fade them out anyway. You don't need them anymore. They're there in the beginning to help you transition from the groundwork, from what the preparation to the riding. Yeah, it's a bit, I think, in a sense, it's like learning to ride a bike. And you start out with the, the training wheels. Yeah. And just, there just comes a point where you know you don't need them anymore. Need them anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very natural process. Yeah. yeah. Well, your your father's still there to hold you, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, Alex, the book. I think you prefer for people to buy it on Amazon than on your website. Well, Is that right? I, I, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because I think this book creates a really great opportunity for all of us who are in the clicker training community to make a statement about clicker training. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I hear from people all the time this lament of, oh, if only more people were clicker training. Mm. If only more people, you know, there's nobody in my area who's clicker training. Well, I see it very differently. I think that there are a lot of clicker trainers out there. And there are a lot of people who, if they heard about clicker training, mm. they would be really open to trying. And so what this book offers us 
is an opportunity to make a statement about clicker training is a great way to train. Mm. It's kind, it's it's very horse friendly, it's handler friendly, it's very accessible, it's not a fad. It's, you know, mm. it's clearly not a fad. And there are a lot of us out there who have been clicker training, been clicker training successfully, and are really enthusiastic about it. But they um, have to find it. They have to they see have that to it's there, it. that That's it right. exists. That it exists. So normally I encourage people to buy the book directly from me through my website is a way to support the work, you know, quite frankly. And I always appreciate that when people support the work by buying the books or buying the DVDs. And it's also a way I will say, when you buy the book, it's another way of saying thank you for these podcasts. This podcast is for both of us. It's an enormous, it's it's an enormous amount of work. There is a cost to maintaining the podcast, both in terms of there's a financial cost, and then there's just the cost in terms of the work that is involved in producing it. So when you buy the book, it's a lovely way to say thank you to both of us for for bringing the podcast. But beyond that, I've really been encouraging people to buy the book through Amazon because I want to see if we can make use of Amazon. You know, a lot of us, a lot of people don't really like using Amazon. You know, it's the monster out there that's swallowing up local retailers and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it. But we can maybe turn things around a little bit and use the algorithms to create a higher visibility for modern horse training. So the more people who buy the book through Amazon, the higher the rankings that the book will have. And that increases its visibility. And the more visible it is to the algorithms, the more the algorithms will find it and list it and make it available so that when people do searches for horse training books, it will be one of the books that turns up. And so rather than ordering it through my website, though if you want to do that, absolutely do that. But I am nudging people in the direction of Amazon as well. And because I'm using the print on demand, if you're in Australia, if you're in Europe, if you're in the UK, you can order through Amazon and you avoid the international shipping costs, which Mm -hmm. are huge, really huge. Um, There's also the opportunity to write a review, which other people will see, because if they buy from you and they tell you how great it is, it's good, it's nice. But when you write a review and many people can read the review, it's it's good, too. Yes. Yes. So I hugely appreciate it. If people could leave a five star review on Amazon or any of the platforms from which you buy books, just leave a five star review. Any lovely words that you want to say about the book are always hugely appreciated to leave a review there. And then to help spread the word that this book is out. If you've gotten it and you're enjoying it, absolutely let other people know about it. Share it through your social media platform. I am not good with social media. You know, that is a huge black hole for me. So I can write books, but I need other people to 
be on social media talking about clicker training and really letting people know that there is this really kind, sensible way to train horses. So I have always said about clicker training that it takes a community effort to bring clicker training into the horse world. And there are a lot of us who are clicker training, which means that there are a lot of us who can be talking about it on social media and really letting other people know that there is this resource out there that is now very accessible. Now it's it's in an ebook format, it's in paperback, it's in hardcover. You can get it through Amazon. It's so very accessible. And it's an easy book to use. And that's what that's what you're discovering. It's such an easy book to use. Yeah. And so, very comprehensive too. Very comprehensive. Yeah. So I really do appreciate it if people will will help us to increase the awareness out there of modern horse training. Because we want horse training to become modern. We do. We do. Yeah. You know, it's not enough that our own horses get to benefit. This is training that you really do want to share and encourage other people to give it a try because it's it's such a horse-friendly, handler-friendly way of interacting with horses. So together, we absolutely will change the way horses are trained. And we're doing it. So good note to end on. I think that's all I really need to say about the book, except to thank everyone who has sent in a review to Amazon. You have just written some astounding, astounding things about the book and about my work. And I just, I just thank you. Thank you immensely. Your words mean the world to me. So until next time, train well and have fun with your horses. <laughs>